Welcome to Ben Navarra's podcast with your host, Ben Navarra's. Have you ever done a podcast before? I've never done anything like this before. <laughs> Isn't it cool? It is pretty cool. Okay. So... I sound what? like a professional for once in my life. Hell yeah. That's kind of the, you know, gives people the chance to sound professional because the, the this thing does all the work for you, you know? These mics yeah. are insane. Yeah. What brand are they? They're Sure microphones, and these guys, each of them are 400 bucks, and it's... I always like to think, like, whatever the best of the best are doing, just do what they're doing. Like, replicate at least that piece of it. And, like, the creative portion can come in, in later. But at least <coughs> getting started, what cameras do they use? What equipment in totality do they use? And then how can I just, just buy that? Yeah. No, that's uh, that's fair. What do you do for a living? Talk to us. Tell us. What do I do for a living? Yeah, man. Uh, put my life at risk to make pilots. That's what I do for a living. It is pretty risky. It is a little risky. I mean, it's. Uh, I can't complain though. I mean, I mean, you know, I I teach being a flight instructor. I mean, I teach people how to. Uh, I teach people how to fly. They can come to me, and I can make them either just a private pilot, go fly around there. Got one guy who bought a Cirrus, and he's just takes his family down to Gulf Shores or Florida, wherever he wants to go. Um, and I got other people that are kids. They want to become professional commercial pilots. So I make them commercial pilots as well. So I do that. I also, we do some trips for um, a college in Columbia. Um, fly around the like basketball players and coaches and stuff like that. Fly them to games uh, or fly around prospective players that they want to wine and dine and be like, hey, come join our college football team. So they just kind of fly, we fly them around a little bit too. So, but, uh, but about 90% of everything I do, I teach people how to fly and could not, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to fly. <laughs> it's foreign. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Gold Star Barber Studio. These guys have some of the best haircuts in the state of Texas. They have six locations in the Bryan College Station area, San Antonio, and in the South Valley. They also have their website, goldstarbarberstudio.com. Please visit their website, get you some merch, schedule you a, an appointment with one of their amazing barbers. I go to Jeff. I think Jeff is, you know, he's been my f best barber that I've ever had. So the speed at which they're able to accomplish things, you know, all of us are busy people. We're trying to get in and out. They harp on speed and quality, and they do not lack on either of them. So I recommend that you guys go ahead and visit Gold Star Barber Studio and get yourself a new barber and beautiful cut. Families are all different. However... Family traditions are a staple. One of my family traditions is shopping at Max Fine Furniture in Westlaco. I remember my grandparents being filled with pride when buying new furniture at an affordable price. This month, go visit Max Fine Furniture on Facebook and in the red ad that says traditions, write hashtag traditions and you will get 25, that's right, 
25% off of high quality furniture at an affordable price. If you come into the store, then you can find Maribel, Elva, Elsa, and Letty at the front. Talk to one of them, and they'll treat you like family. Yeah, it's uh, it's foreign. I mean, uh, you know, you have the what we say is you have the best corner office in the world. I mean, your office is the sky. You know, you get to fly above the clouds and see the most beautiful sunsets, and it's also a great challenge. I mean, problem solving is probably one of the most important skills to have. I mean, you have to, you know, you be you'll be given a you're going on a long flight, and sometimes you know it's just easy. And other times you have a thunderstorm in front of you and it's like, well, can't fly through that. So now what are we going to do? And you have hundreds of different options at your disposal and through experience and through knowledge, you know, you kind of have to develop um, good problem solving skills and to be like, okay, well, we're going to do this, you know, X, Y, or Z and kind of come to a conclusion on which one is the best. Um, in, in what scenario do you, and do you ever like go under a storm? Like, can you like just, you Decrease can altitude. You can. It depends on the strength of it. So if it's like uh, you're from Texas, right? Yeah. You probably have experience. You know those nasty, gnarly thunderstorms. Don't want to go underneath those because you're going to get thrown and jostled all around and hail and tornadoes and stuff like that. So I mean, generally you try to go behind it. You'll even see like even the large commercial airliners. I mean, you either go behind it or you go far above it. The stuff that I fly at the moment, we can't get above it. But the airliners, they normally can. Um, if it's a small one, you know, kind of like a rain shower, you can go underneath it. But you're going to be in for a pretty bumpy ride. But, how high are we talking? Like, how high do you have to go? Um, a small size would be about 20,000 feet. Um, commercial airliners will cruise at about 35,000. But then thunderstorms can get up to fifty to 60,000 feet. Up all the way through the stratosphere. So, and so then you, you go around, and then you go around. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it is uh, it is not a uh, fun time. <laughs> so, but and that's just one of the many many uh, problems or uh, challenges that we face. You know, traffic, unruly passengers, sick passengers, um, a wider range of problems up there. And you know, it's thankfully you know throughout the aviation history in the United States has become very safe, but uh, went through a lot of trial and error as well. <laughs> How often do you have to deal with not-so-great passengers? Thankfully, flying very small planes, uh, not too often. I've had to deal with a couple of sick passengers, um, or I should say students, but you know, thankfully just turn right back around and land. Sick because of the height? Um, air sick, so, I mean, it's kind of... If you get up there, it could be a nice <coughs> 95 degree day. It's really hot. It can be bumpy. You know, in the small airplanes that I fly, they're like little four-seaters. I mean, just from turbulence, uh, you know, the sun heats up the earth, creates little hot air pockets that then kind of blast hot air up into the uh, into the sky. Nothing dangerous, but it just bumps people around. You know, you're when you're kind of up and then also when you're up there in the sky, you're looking outside, just a very different perspective that you've never that people have maybe never had before. So their brain is just kind of getting jostled around. So the sight picture is different. Getting bumped around. It can be hot. They could be, you know, sweating and getting dehydrated and may not even know it. So nothing serious, but you know, it can cause nausea. 
stuff like that. So I've had a couple people just have to turn back around real quick before they throw up in the plane. <laughs> but gross. Yeah, I mean, but it's nothing. Uh, nothing too terrible yet. What is? How much worse does it get? Do you have like stories of un- other individuals like like unruly passengers that will make it difficult to do your job safely? Yeah, thankfully I have not had this happen to me yet. But when you're so when you're teaching some in the in my you know the the airliners they have their own kind of issues with passengers that like either screaming no I'm not going to put on a mask or no I'm not going to sit in the seat just kind of being stupid. But then thankfully they have you know they just sit there. The police come on board. They remove them from the airplane. That's about that's about the worst. And uh, you know the pilots generally don't have to deal with that one on one. Um, as an instructor, I'm teaching people who have possibly never even been in a plane before and they have their hands on the controls and, you know, you're coming down to land and I've had this happen before, but thankfully, um, nothing drastic happened, but they get scared because you are, you know, you're coming towards the ground. You feel like you're kind of falling (laughs) out of the air and they will freeze and they will just get this death grip on the yoke and they just will not let go. Um, and I've done, and we've just, I've discussed this with, uh, the other instructors is like, what would we do? I've only heard of one instructor there who's actually had to physically hit the student. He took his elbow and had to jab him as hard as he could. Um, because you have to do it to save both your skins, Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they don't do it on purpose, but it's just the human instinct just to kind of freeze just cause I get so scared. Does that person not fly again? No, they do not. Yeah. <laughs> You're not allowed ever to risk us again. I mean, yeah. I mean, that would be to the, to the, the discretion of the instructor. Maybe you just have the kind of like maybe teach them a little differently. Because, I mean, that is what we are. I mean, we're, we're teachers. I mean, same, pretty much the same thing as a professor in a college class or your high school teacher, whoever it may be. It's just that now we're in a cockpit of an airplane. So sometimes you might have to maybe kind of break them of that fear somehow. Maybe you, maybe I would fly it a lot more before I would even let them touch the controls and then, then be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm comfortable now. Something like that. Um, yeah, but that's one hell of a progression. Yes. Yes. Just sit there. Yeah. And get used to being in the air. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes we have to do that for students. Um, but yeah, I mean the worst would be probably along those lines. Um, it has been, not of our flight school, but it has been a fatal occurrence at other flight schools. But, you know, it's a occupational hazard. It's just something that we have to be very, very aware of. Um, as a more experienced instructor, you're kind of generally able to pick up the signs. And you kind of look for things like if they have both their hands on the yoke and just gripping it. It's like, eh, this is probably, a, let's probably tell them to let off it for a moment. <laughs> so, you know, in a, like while you're getting your driver's test, you, you have like a break on uh-huh. the, the teacher has a break on their end yes is that the same thing that you guys have access to or are all the controls in the hands of the the pilot thankfully uh we both have we both have dual controls so i have rudder pedals which steer us on the ground um and i and i also have brakes on my side of the airplane and i also have a yoke on my side of the airplane so i can do everything they can do so then why is it dangerous for that person to grip so hard if you can manipulate that as well like yeah um they're interconnected so i mean i guess (coughs) i mean cars don't have two steering wheels but they are they are interconnected controls and if a if someone just gets so 
two things. If one person just gets so terrified, and they could be stronger than me. I mean, you're a bigger guy than me. If you've gripped onto that thing, and if I cannot physically over-control it, I mean, I won't be able to control the airplane. Um, another thing is that if they do the wrong thing quick enough, um, I mean, it could. you're talking about you'd have to have a reaction time of two to three seconds to possibly fix it. I mean, if you're like, take, I've heard, uh, there was a young female instructor, I think it happened last year, uh, they, she was taking off with a student and they assume that the student just on takeoff took the yoke and just yanked it back. And we're talking about an 18 year old girl who's the instructor and she's at, you know, you have to now overpower, could be a guy like you that had to now shove it back down. It could, you just could not possibly um, have the physical ability to do so. So they have to be lifting weights is what you're telling me. Yeah, you got to be strong. <laughs> <laughs> so what is what is pulling the yoke back versus pushing forward do? Um, it pitches the aircraft either up or down. So if you're, like you're, yeah. if you're in straight and level flight, if I take that yoke and I push it down, it physically will push the aircraft nose down and vice versa. You pull back, it will lift the airplane, and the nose will pitch up. How do you know at what point to begin your lift? And what is that progression mm -hmm. like whenever you are on a liftoff? Uh, um, so we have, it depends on the airplane you're flying, but majority of them have a rotation speed. So for instance, in the, uh, in the Piper Warrior that I fly, rotation speed is about 65 knots. So we have an airspeed indicator, and that's telling you how much wind is flowing over the wings. Because airplanes fly from the wind goes above and underneath the wing, creates lift. So when you have enough wind going over and under the wing, the airplane is now capable to take off. So you just so once the airspeed indicator would get to 60, 65 knots, you would then just it's a very small movement if you do it right. Um, just a couple inches back, and the aircraft nose will come up, and then the nose wheel will come off the ground, and then after about two to three seconds the mains will come up and then it will just glide up into the air I'm trying to think of a good way to it's kind of hard to correlate it with anything if you have never done it before um are you pulling like five inches six inches back like are you is it that much of a pull uh yeah about two to five inches might depend on the airplane you're flying might depend on the how much wind do you have? But it's not much. I mean, I tell I tell students, like, when you're flying an airplane, you see in the movies, like, you know, the pilot in a thunderstorm and they're making all these big controls. It's <laughs> yeah. like, that is completely unrealistic. <laughs> cool. Uh, it's kind of like, they're always doing so much. I'm like, yeah. man, what the fuck does that even do? No, I tell students, the less you move that yoke, the better of a pilot you are. So, I mean, if I'm, a, if I'm flying from takeoff to landing, I mean, I will be moving it maybe one to two inches back, one to two inches forward, and just a, maybe a 10 degrees left to right. Wow. Like, not much at all. No, it just, it just makes the flight smoother. I mean, you can do more. And sometimes you need more if it's, a, if it's turbulent. Sometimes that's why we have such big controls, inputs that we can use. You can get a big gust of wind that wants to throw you to the left, and you might have to use a big correction for temporary moment and then go back to neutral. But it's very, but if it's like a calm one day and it's not very bumpy, it should be very, very small inputs as you're out there flying. And on the opposite, so when you're, how do you know when you're ready to land? How do you begin 
you're slowing down and by how much? When, well, there's a couple of different ways. So let's say that you and I are going to go take off from here and fly out to, let's just say we're going to go fly to like Los Angeles. So they're going to get us lined up with a runway, probably on about a five mile final. So we'll be staring at the runway and we'll be about five miles away from us. Um, that's generally where, and it depends on if you're flying a large or small airplane. For the small airplanes I fly, generally I'll keep my cruise airspeed, which will be about, think about like 110 miles an hour. We use knots because that has to do with the wind, but about 110 miles an hour. You'd come down, and then when you get to about a three-mile final, so three miles out from the runway, that's when you make your power adjustment. So you would pull your power back to what you would consider like your landing configuration, your landing power. Um, Is that set per airplane that you're flying? It's set per airplane. It also depends on wind. It depends on temperature. It depends on altitude. So like landing here in Las Vegas, if it's engines perform worse, the hotter it is and the higher you are. So Las, Las Vegas sits at a higher elevation and Las Vegas is obviously very, very hot. So your engine is not performing as well. So I might have to use instead of like the 1700 RPM, I would normally pull it back. I may have to leave it up at 2000 that day. And you just do that based on, you know, the jets, they kind of have like a computer that will tell you where to set it. But the airplanes I fly, um, you just kind of have to do it by feel. So I pull my power back to 17 and I'm looking down at the runway. There's a couple, well, there's a couple different reasons uh, or ways you can determine if you're high or low. So they have four lights next to the runway and they're angled to where you'll see different colors. And if you see four red lights, that means you're too low. And if you see four white lights, that means you're too high. But there's this nice little area in between where you'll see two white and two red. And that means what we call you would be on glide path or glide the, yeah, the glide path. That's about a three degree angle that will bring you all the way down to the runway to where you're not screaming down at the runway. And you're also not like hovering right over the city coming towards it. You say three or 30, three, three degrees, three degrees. Yes. Cool. Okay. I just wanted to, I was like <laughs> three seems it's really, it's small, but yeah, that's uh, and that's standard across anywhere you go and land in. That's what the, you know, when the jets come in, um, it doesn't seem like much, but you don't want to be coming screaming down at the ground, you know, at a steep angle coming down. Yeah, 30 doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd be screaming towards the ground. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. You picture that, you picture that plane. Yeah, that's, no. we're too low. Yeah, too low, too fast. You'd be too low and you'd be screaming towards the runway. You'd have some un unhappy passengers in the back. <laughs> what does it feel like? Are you ever moving at that kind of degree ever um you 30 degrees would be very very dramatic um technically that would be considered aero then you're getting into actual like aerobatic areas so like if you actually pit, pitch up more than 30 or down more than 30 that's technically considered aerobatic so unless you're doing aerobatic maneuvers you're not getting anywhere close to that have you ever done some cool aerobatic maneuvers the very first plane so what got me in the aviation is that my dad's friend took me up in a uh, Satabria. It's a small two-seater, and I was sitting in the front, and he was sitting behind me. So it's a uh, – and we both had dual inputs. 
So we both had controls. Um, and we did barrel rolls. We did backflips. The most, the coolest thing what we did is he took a roll of toilet paper and he threw it out the window. Well, toilet paper is so light. It just kind of, well, it, it unravels and it just kind of hovers there. And what we did is that we, uh, we did about, it's kind of like when we do the maneuver, it's kind of considered like a lazy eight, but you pitch up and you make a drastic turn. You kind of let the airplane come back and fall out of the sky and you come down, you cut the toilet paper roll in half and you come back up and you cut in half again. You just keep cutting it in half until it falls to the ground <laughs> or you get too low. But that was the coolest thing that I did. So, but yeah, so I've done some aerobatic, um, flying and that is the most fun flying i've also probably ever done no wonder you got hooked i know right (laughs) he knew what he was doing he knew what he was doing and he did it he did it well (laughs) that's pretty cool would you ever like wanted to start doing that kind of stuff is that something that you can even take classes on oh yeah you can take classes i mean legally i can go do it now there's nothing that says i can't do it but it would be kind of stupid not to get training on is kind of the thing um it'd be one hell of a like Let's see how this goes. <laughs> yes. Um, you also have to have the airplane that's capable. You can't just take any airplane. It actually has to be certified for aerobatics. Um, so I would have to find the plane. But no, I. it is something that I want to do. If I One day I want to buy an airplane and it, I don't want it to be aerobatic. Just something small, something that could do that kind of stuff. Um, the only thing that I've done recently that's even compared... <coughs> it's kind of in the same ballpark. They don't do aerobatics, but they're called uh, stole airplanes. Short takeoff and landing. Uh, right now, it's been a Zenith, and they're actually they're actually built by the people that own them. So they're home-built airplanes, so they buy a kit, and it's just an airplane in pieces. And then they put it together, they put an engine in it, and then you uh, fly it. <laughs> That sounds trustworthy. You got it. Well, yeah, you want to know the builder. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you know any builders? Yeah, um, I have two students right now that uh, that I'm training in their uh, their zeniths. But what those specialize in is that the short takeoff and landing is uh, like have you ever seen the bush pilots like up in Alaska with those big wheels and those little planes that just kind of they land on gravel barges or back in the wilderness maybe if i saw a picture but i don't think so maybe in the way if it's like the one in wolverine where it's like probably not there's a scene where there's one that's flying at at what's his name at logan and he's like riding into a barn i don't even know if that's an airplane i don't think so it might be a helicopter (laughs) (laughs) i don't think so um no but they'll be that but these airplanes are like kind of they go up in alaska and they what they specialize in is that they'll take off in like about 100, 100 feet. Some of them that go to competitions, they'll take off in 15 feet. So, I mean, you're talking about in the length of this room, you're going to airplane off the ground in about that short of time span. What kind span. of engine does that thing have? It's actually really small. The one I've been flying only has, it's just a 80 horsepower. Comparable to all the other ones I teach my students in, those have at least... 150 to 160 horsepower so it's actually half but they're just so light i mean the airplane weighs about (coughs) 700 to 600 pounds wow Mm -hmm. so it's just a little airframe with just an engine and then probably one of the heaviest things in there is me (laughs) so the shittiest little seats i bet (laughs) 
It's not terribly comfortable. <laughs> if I were to build one, I'd probably specialize in making it a little bit more luxurious on the seat. But uh, but yeah. But then you're looking at 50 feet rather than 15. Well, that's true. That is a good point. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess it depends on what you're going for. That's true. I think the 50 feet would be, I'd rather be at least a little comfortable. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. I got one student. Uh, I haven't taken it out of his uh, field yet, but uh, but he has a he's a farmer. And he bought this zenith from someone, and he has about 900 feet of a grass. I mean, you know, he's a farmer. He's got all kinds of fields and stuff. Yeah. So, and that's what they specialize in. Like, hey, I got a farm. I got some land. I want to go fly my airplane and just put it right back in my shed when I'm done. So. What a luxury. Yeah. Yeah. And for, I would imagine a small plane like that isn't super crazy expensive. Talking, uh, if you wanted a decent one, about 40. But, I mean, that's cheaper than a new car. So, I mean, it's not that bad. You definitely, you can get two of those for one model x this is very true model y whichever one whichever one, one they're on hundred and ten thousand dollar car <laughs> uh-huh. damn that's pretty fun i mean i feel like it's such a niche area to get into as to be an instructor do you, do you have to go to college to be an instructor you don't so that's one of the i went to a job fair at a high school <laughs> and i was trying to tell all the kids i'm like you can do this and make lots of money and don't have to go to college <laughs> no debt yeah yeah well then that's also true um no, so how you get your license, so if you wanted to become an instructor, first you need to get your private license. So all that means is that, hey, I can go fly an airplane and fly around some people. You can't get paid, um, and that's about the biggest limitation. Uh, but you can go take your friends up and go fly, go buy an airplane and go fly around, do whatever you want to do. Um, so what you do is that, like for instance, you would come to me at the airport I work at and you say, hey, I want to become a pilot. I would say, okay, well, I am now your teacher or your instructor, so it's just you and me. I would get you your training minimums, which to fly an airplane, you only need 40 hours in the aircraft. And then you need to be, and I also need to get you included in that 40 hours is 10 hours of solo. So I will actually sign you off and say, hey, you're going to go fly this airplane 10 hours by yourself. Generally, after about 15 to 20 hours, that's about the average when I can solo someone. So it doesn't take very long that you're at least able to take off and land the airplane. <laughs> it's pretty wild. It is pretty wild. It's a little People, scary. It is a little scary, but it's also very expensive, so you can't fly it for a couple hundred hours. <laughs> <laughs> so how long does it take? Like, what's an average outing? Is, is one outing one hour, or is one hour a long session? Um, uh, About an hour. An hour will be a little short. I'd say about an hour and a half. But okay. with all the taxing and the stuff on the ground, yeah, you're gonna in the air for about an hour. So do you involve a solo all the stuff behind and after the actual in air time you count towards your solo time? Um every yeah, if you're ever by yourself, you include in the solo time. And then everything else with me is just like total time. So I meant like whatever that ta- however long it takes to taxi. Okay. Oh, are you including all of like the maintenance, the checks, the all of that is included in my flying time? That, that is correct. Yes. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So like, if you're ever, because if you're as soon as that engine turns on, your flight time, your time that you can put in your logbook, um, whenever the engine is on, you can log that in your logbook. And how much does it cost to do my private? I guess it would vary depending on the location, but. Yeah, it depends on the location. Um, a good, a a good like this will be enough money. Is you're talking about between twelve and fifteen thousand. 
which is a good little chunk of change. Yeah, it's a good little chunk of change. So then after you get your private, you then get your instrument. So as a private pilot, you can't fly into clouds, you can't fly into fog. You have very you have pretty strict weather uh, weather limitations. Which is a big deal when you're in the air. It is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> can't, go, can't go very places. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I tell people it's like if you're gonna become a pilot and if you actually want to go do things, you need to get your instrument. Unless you're just gonna like fly locally around the area and just kinda like look at your house or something. <laughs> You want you need your instrument license. Cool. So then, in order to get that, you then need another forty hours on top of that. Okay. So then, when you're flying, you actually put on these uh, these goggles that actually haze out the side of your vision, so you're only able to see your instruments. So then, you just fly the airplane by your instruments, and you shoot. Gnarly. Uh huh. So we they're called approaches. So like cloudy over Las. Well, never happened, but you know, cloudy over Las Vegas, <laughs> and. Uh, an airplane's coming down, you either use GPSs <coughs> and they triangulate triangulate your position and tell you exactly where you are and they'll tell you where to fly to make sure you don't hit a tower or hit the ground. And then that will bring you down to about 200 feet above the runway. So it gets you really close yeah. to the ground. Um, or there's other ground-based equipment that use radio frequencies that shoot at radio frequencies and they tell you either to go up, down, left, or right. And they also will bring you down to the runway. Which is feet. the better or more reliable option? Uh, that's up for debate. <laughs> I like... So the ground-based one is called an ILS. Now, if you ever get on an airliner, that's what they're using. They're using ILSs to come down to the runway. But that's just kind of been the industry standard. But GPS technology has gotten so good. And if you have the more advanced GPS unit, which we call WAS wide augmentation area system um, your phone does not have that but your phone will i think it gets you to about 15 meters the wasp capability is down i believe to at least at least five meters so i mean it can tell that Hot damn yeah so it can tell that you can tell exactly where you are within five meters anywhere on earth um so that's kind of insane accuracy. It is very, very good accuracy. So they're both, and then the ILS, like I said, it uses the radio frequencies. It is a, you know, it's been around for decades. It's proven to be reliable. So I teach students use both. It might depend on the weather. So ILS and ILS will generally get you lower to the ground. But let's say the clouds are not quite that low. I'll generally do the GPS because. It is a ground-based equipment. If someone's out there and takes a sledgehammer and busts a cable or something, I may not know it until it's too late. But a GPS outage, a lot less likely to happen. And if it does happen, we'll, I'd probably know fairly quickly because everyone else would lose it as well. There, there's bigger problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's bigger problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the whole different thing. What, are there different... Does every airplane have both? Not every airplane. Um, most of them have the ILS capability because the WAS technology with the GPS is an, is newer technology. Um, so when people, but generally when people, if they have money, they'll generally get both. Both seems like a safe option. Yeah, it is a safe option. You always me, want a backup. Yeah, it makes me feel comfortable. <laughs> I worry that with, if the power went out on my plane is that a thing could could my power go mm -hmm. out and then therefore my gps go out 
Yes. Uh, so I was on a, I was on a uh, flight with a student um, under the what we consider IFR rules. So I was getting her her instrument license. So I was shooting those approaches, and there was clouds around the area, and we lost our alternator. So the alternator, of course, powers the battery. So we had about 30 minutes left. Now, thankfully, we landed before it went out. But if it had gone out, it depends on the airplane you're flying. And that airplane, we would have lost pretty much everything. So it would have been there. Now, the engine will not quit. The engine is independent of the battery, unlike That's your cool. car. Yeah, so they run on magnetos. So they're almost... Magnetos. Magnetos, cool word. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> they're, uh, they're like little generators. And as that propeller is spinning, it charges, the magnetos charge, and they create spark with the spark plugs. So that engine is independent of the battery once it gets started. That's fun. Uh-huh. But if you were to lose your battery in the air, in the clouds, that is a very, very bad situation. That's what we consider an emergency. And you would try to get out of the clouds as soon as possible, which is what you would, pretty much your only option. How long do you have until you need to land you said 30 minutes until you would lose your uh like your gps and all that stuff that's just a rule of thumb okay some will last longer some will last maybe less but that's just a rule of thumb um and then after that once again the engine runs independently of the battery source it would then just depend on how much fuel you have left and then hoping that you can land well enough with just your eyes yeah, so that then you would try to go to, so IFR is like cloud flying, VFR, visual flight rules would be considered, uh, you know, like you said, flying with your eyes. So I don't need anything inside that cockpit to fly that airplane. Of course, it's nice to have, but you don't need it. So theoretically, if we lost our GPS and stuff and lost, we would also lose our radios and everything, I would just look outside, try to find if... <laughs> If there's a hole in the clouds, I'll find the hole and get below the clouds and just try to find an airport. You know, we have uh, on our phones, we have an app called ForeFlight. And if I just pull up my phone, it will tell me exactly where I am um, anywhere on Earth. And it will tell me actually how fast I'm going. It will tell me the nearest airport. So I would actually just resort to my phone or my iPad. But if I didn't have that, once again, you just look outside. And if you really ran out of gas and you had an issue and you couldn't find an airport, then you find a farmer's field. <laughs> and and the likelihood of you landing that is? Oh, very, very high. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you, especially at like in Missouri, Great Great Plains area, I mean, let's say you lose your engine or you run out of fuel, and if you're able to see a field, you have a very good shot. The survivability is very, very high. Huh. Not what I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, uh, it depends on the situation. I mean, if it is really cloudy and you can't see the ground, that changes things. Yeah. If it's at night, um, that makes it a lot more difficult because it's just pitch black below you and you just kind of have to hope for the best. Yeah. So that's dangerous. Um, but no, during the daytime, if it's bright, clear day, you know, if you can see all these fields below you, you have a very high chance of uh, surviving. I actually had a student who uh, he lost his engine flying he was on his solo so he wasn't a pilot yet and he had just flown over his mom's house and he was coming back and he was about he was low about 1500 feet maybe a thousand feet above the ground Damn, so that's pretty low yeah so not too high and uh he lost his engine and he was alone so i wasn't with him 
And uh, he put it in the back of some farmer's field, very minimal damage to the airplane, and walked away without a scratch. So it's that, but that's what we train our students for. So when we're out there flying along, we might be doing a maneuver, or out there just in cruise, and I'll reach over and I'll just chop the power on the student. And they'll kind of be like, oh, no, what'd you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the fuck did you just do to me? <laughs> Luke, this is not okay. <laughs> uh, exactly. So it's like, well, what do you do? And then uh, they just have to go through their emergency emergency checklist. And they're like, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And then I'm like, all right, where are you going to land? And they'll just have to point to a field. Or if they're close enough, they'll I'll point to an airport and say, all right, well, go try to put it down near there. We won't land in the farmer's field, but we'll get clo- I'll get them close enough to where it's like, see, you're okay. Yeah, it's going to be a bumpy landing, but you're not going to you're not going to hurt yourself. So um, I am as only as good as my teacher is, right? As a student, yes, yes. So I better hope <laughs> that I've employed a damn good teacher. Yes. Otherwise, I mean, I get into that situation when I'm solo, mm-hmm. and it's not okay. I'm still in training, and I'm solo. And oh yeah, I, yeah. Is it something that you're continuously like? talking about as you're traveling with this person with your first 15, 20 hours? Or I guess you said you're 10, 15 before they go into solos? Yeah, I mean, should, yeah, I mean <coughs> some some people take longer, but yeah. But continuously talking about what was that? Um, to check your emergencies, to like going through the routine of oh, yeah. if this does happen, then this is what we're doing. It's not like a, we're just going to talk about it one, two, three times. No, no, yeah, I talk about it to them. That is That is the greatest emphasis that we put on students so flying an airplane taking off i mean learning how to land that's a learning curve it takes a little bit but taking off and flying it somewhere and then coming back that is fairly easy so when i go up there with students i'm generally like okay well i'm going to pretend that you're on fire or you've lost your engine or you've lost your radios now what are you going to do because you can't talk to anybody oh you've lost your gps how are you going to get home or how are you going to get to another airport it's all problem solving. It's all problem solving. And every day is different. So it's not like, oh, well, here is the one answer that will be the solution every single time. That's not how it is. You know, if you're That's fun. Uh-huh. So that's that's part of the reason why I like it so much, just because it's like every single day is different. Every single landing is different. Like that's a that's a uh kind of a light bulb that goes off with a lot of students when they finally understand how to land an airplane. They're like, this is different every time. Cause they're trying to do it the same every time. Be like, okay, there's one way to do this. And it's like, no, it's different every single time you do it. No two landings are the same. No two emergencies are the same. So that's why we continuously do it with students to be like, okay, what are you going to do in this situation, this situation, this situation, and try to make them think about it in the back of their minds all the time. I mean, when I'm flying, Especially with like professional pilots, I was coming back on a trip with a guy and uh from Athens, Georgia, and I mean we're flying over the Appalachian Mountains and it's kind of it's pretty bad. It's low level clouds around there, and I mean we're flying high above them, but we're just talking amongst e- amongst ourselves. We're like, okay, what are we gonna do if we lose an engine? Well, we're gonna do X, Y, and Z. Okay, what are we gonna do if? We have a fuel issue. Okay, we're going to go to this airport. Well, what if the headwind gets a little bit too strong and we don't have enough fuel to make it to St. Louis? You know, we had contingency plans all set out just in case if it did happen. It's like, all right, here's the contingency plan we came up with. We're going to do this. And like when you fly on an airliner or stuff like that, I mean, 
they do, they will do the same stuff all the time as well. It's just constantly in the back of your mind. You're talking about that and there's thinking about that. And especially when you get in a crew, you know, it's also very important teamwork skills because when you get into a crude environment, like coming back from that pilot from Athens, now, now you had to come up with a plan together and work out these issues together. Now it's not just, Oh, I'm figuring it out on my own. Now it's okay. Now we got to bring our, both of our experience and knowledge together and see what's the best plan of action. So, wow. Yeah. A lot That's of, it's kind of fun. I mean, it, it both forces you to be very present, but at the same time, constantly having this Rolodex of, I mean, it probably sounds more simple. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, yeah, that's fucking life, Ben. But it's you're you're constantly having to remember all the stressful, like the, the you, you can be stressed, I guess. But the rolodex of problem solving skills and and all the different routes, while at the same time just making sure you're present, very much so in that moment. Otherwise, yes. if you get too caught up in the rolodex and you kind of just lose sight of, if you go through that repetition, this is all, the way I always land planes and you're going to miss something. Yes. And the opposite is true. If you're only looking at the, the what's in front of you, and like, oh, all things are nice, but then forget about all the other contingencies, then something bad does happen. You don't have that time mm-hmm. or that plan there. Mm-hmm. What a balance. Yeah, no, that's true. And it's uh, you know, that's part of the charm of it. You know, it's part of the, it's part of the challenge, you know, cause it's, and it takes away, it makes you, it makes you, you, you cannot be complacent, which, you know, it's kind of a fun, exciting thing. But at the same time, if you do become complacent, then it just, then it becomes uh, dangerous, you know. So, double-edged sword, can't be lazy. <laughs> you are forced. You don't, it's like, you just, you don't, it's like squatting without, and this is the way I want to like, like yeah, it no, back to yeah. the closest thing that I can. It's like, like squatting without any, any, any supports or any spotters. Yeah. You, you better get Better know what thing. you're doing and yeah, you better be able to put it back up. Otherwise you're, you're coming down. <laughs> yeah. You, you're, you run the risk of injury and you guys are running the risk of death. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first thing you said. I, I risk my life teaching people how to be in the air it's <laughs> no truer words have been spoken on the podcast <laughs> yeah i mean i wish you know and it's and it's not the sound uh it's funny so one of the instructors there he tells uh i talk to the airport manager um at jeff city all the time about aviation accidents and stuff i just because one of the things on how we learn to be better pilots is okay let's look at what this guy on purpose or on accident, or maybe he thought he knew he was do- the. Maybe he took the option that he thought was the best. Um, let's see what he did wrong, which then led to this accident. So I don't do that. So I look at the worst instances in aviation as much as possible to try to be a better pilot. And it's funny because one the other instructor, he's like, "If you ever want to be depressed about flying, just go talk to Luke and Eric because they'll tell you like everything bad and." Make it sound like you know, oh, you're gonna die, kind of a thing. But it's very inherently, it's it's very very safe. You know, once again, if you're not complacent and you just learn, you're knowledgeable, and you help, you have those contingency plans. You know, it's very it's very safe. There are, I don't I don't know how significant the the statistic is, and you probably know it better than I do, but there are fewer airplane accidents or crashes. Then there are 
car crashes. There are a lot more car crash. There's a lot more cars, right, than there are airplanes flying in the sky. So I wonder if you balance that number uh, mm-hmm. to to accommodate for the number of cars versus airplanes. How significant that difference really is. But it seems to be pretty safe. Again, you don't hear very many crazy stories. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so it depends on so how the FAA has the that is the government uh, organization that oversees aviation. Um, how they have they kind of cut aviation into two spectrums, either airliners. So if you go get on American or Delta or whatever it is, then you have general aviation. That is what I'm in. So I'm flying these little airplanes. You know, I'm not an airliner. Um, if you're, if you get on an airliner and they've done it, like you were saying, they've taken per plane versus per car and a fly. One of the safest places you can be is on an airliner. I think they've had in the United States, in the United States airliners, I think they've had one fatality like the past 12 or 10 years. And I believe that was because, and it was, you know, sad, but I, there was just one because I think there was a structural issue with an airplane. And I think somebody, um, due to loss of cabin pressure, suffocated. Um, but still, one fatality over 10 years for with all these, I mean, just stand out near Las, Las Vegas airport. And it's just plane after plane after plane. And those are full of hundreds of people. <clears throat> and that's going on all over this country every single day. I mean, millions of people fly a year. So, and just for one person to die in 10 years, because on an airplane, pretty good. Pretty good odds. Pretty good pretty odds. Pretty good odds. Yeah. <laughs> really, really good odds. You got a much higher chance of getting struck by lightning. Now, <laughs> if you get into general aviation, so people flying around these air, small airplanes, there's about, there's about 360 to 380 fatalities a year, which still isn't that bad. But if you do, you know, the... I believe they do mile comparison between cars and airplanes. I think it's about the same risk as like riding a motorcycle. So is it super extraordinarily dangerous? No. But is it like the safest mode of transportation? Not quite. Also no. Right. But majority of fatalities in aviation just result from, are like over 80% from pilot error. It's not from mechanical it's not due to unforeseen circumstances. It's the pilot making errors. The pilot either not taking enough fuel, which is actually the highest cause of accidents. Really? It's just them running out of Trying gas. Trying to skip out on gas. <laughs> yes. Gas is expensive. Yes, it is expensive. <laughs> so, you know, if you just if you so if you just have enough training, if you just have enough fuel, you've already made yourself much safer because that's the leading at leading cause of accidents in aviation. Um, and then you have things like weather. I mean, in some time, and sometimes there are issues or uh, problems which you just cannot solve, and there's also that in there as well. But overall, I think if you're a good pilot, it, it is safer than driving, in my opinion. Have you had any close calls? <coughs> I don't know. I might... Uh... I might force them, uh, I might try to, my brain might force me to forget them. I'm not, uh, yeah, also, yeah. <laughs> to keep on going up there, you kind of have to forget them to an extent, right? No, not, not too bad. I mean, I've been very fortunate. I, have, I don't consider I've had any close calls. Um, there've been a couple of, oh shit, 
moments, like getting a little too close to an airplane. I had a guy almost cut me off and got, I think, within like 400 feet of me. But So what is that? Like if I was on the road, if I was in a lane, mm-hmm. what does 400 feet look like? Like in comparison, right? I understand that 400 feet is going to seem much further, right? Right, but is is that like a car? Is that like right next to me? I see. What you, so let's say that yeah. So an air, if an airplane gets within 500 feet of you, you legally are supposed to report it. So pretty big deal. That's a mandatory reporting. So for a guy to get like 400 feet, yeah, that'd be that'd be a guy probably edging into your lane probably just honestly probably within a couple inches of nicking you so and the very very close in the world of the sky and why what was the the reason was there a reason uh there was not a reason it was just a uh someone doing stupid shit just not paying attention that's pretty much sadly that's pretty much the gist of it but once again training kicks in you make the appropriate change in altitude and climb. And I just like announced to myself, I'm like, Hey, I'm doing this because I need to avoid this guy. Um, and you know, that's about it. Thankfully, thankfully like midair collision kind of stuff is very rare. And if it ever does happen, it's kind of a more, so one actually happened out on the East coast, not that long ago. There was, there was two airplanes taking off and, one airplane was turning towards the sun and there was an airplane almost right in from his perspective, you know, you're driving down the road and the sun is right up there. Well, I don't put a car up there in the sun. You won't be able to see it because you can't stare straight at the sun and they ended up colliding. So you have some rare, very small circumstances that happen like that, but that's very rare. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you get up there in the air and there's just like drivers. There's, there's some stupid flyers too. (laughs) They're stupid everywhere. They're mm-hmm. stupid everywhere. <laughs> just, just humans. There's humans doing stupid shit. And so, is, is the goal to be a commercial or a line, like a liner? He's a commercial mm-hmm. liner pilot. Is that the goal? Yeah. So, how your typical journey works? And I got off on a tangent, but no, you know, I, I the, think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna before we answer that one, if we can come back a little bit, yeah, because we were talking about like so how to become an instructor, how to become an instructor, uh-huh. yeah. So we went through uh, private instrument, yep, and, and then yep, and then the next thing is to get your commercial license. And a lot of people, you know, they think, oh, I'm a commercial pilot now. Yes, you get your commercial license, and all that requires is just you get a, you do a lot more flying, and then you take another test. Um, so, so every time you get your, so you get your private license, I get your hours and all that. And then you go to a designated pilot examiner or a DPE and he will test you. It's about four hours long. He'll ask you questions on the ground and then you'll go up and fly for two hours. Make sure you're safe. Same thing with the instrument. Same thing with the commercial. Um, once you get your commercial license, you're legally a be, you know, I, Someone can come along and say, hey, all right, I'll hire you as a pilot and go fly my family around or go fly this jet or whatever it is. However, that is not going to happen because you have no actual experience. (laughs) So it's like graduating college, but with no experience, not not even ever having a job. And it's like no one's going to touch you. But what most people do is either they become um, majority of people become instructors. So then you take another test, which is your CFI, Certified Flight Instructor, which is what I am. 
And then that allows you to make pilots. And someone told me this. It's kind of like, and it's it's the only industry in which, or one of the only industries in which you have the least experienced people teaching new upcoming people into the industry. Because here I am an instructor with just a couple hundred hours, and I don't know what the hell I'm still doing. And I'm <laughs> now it's like, all right, now make new pilots. It's like, okay, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Hope so. Hope so. Um, so that's how you become an instructor. So you get those four certificates. Okay. And then about that time you'll have about 300 hours of flight time and then whenever you want to become like an airline pilot you have to have at least a minimum of 1500 hours Damn. so when i'm teaching students i'm getting yeah. this flight time as well so and if you work hard i get about 700 hours a year so two years i can then go work at a regional airline so one of the smaller ones which is what i'm working towards right now nice so are these tests getting progressively more expensive or are they pretty much the same? If we're looking at, I think you said 15,000 or so for the private. Yeah. Was that right? Yes. So we're looking for 15,000. Is it getting more expensive as you get on to these new schools or is it looking about the same or less? Um, for each new rating you're getting? Correct. Um, it's about, so your private costs about fifteen. Your instrument, you don't need quite as many hours, so you're looking at about 10. And then your commercial, so when you get your private in, instrument, you'll have about, oh, let's say about uh, 90 hours. Then to get your commercial, you need at least 250 hours. So that's Damn. where a big chunk, and that's just you paying out of pocket. Damn. So then you're talking about, to get through all those three ratings, I think I added it up, and a good estimate would be about 65000 But then you become an instructor, then at least you can start making money. And do you get to charge a like your own rate, or is it a rate that's set by the FAA or that specific um, not um, school? School, kind of. yeah. Um, I can do. <laughs> I can, the FAA has no say in how much I charge. Okay. Um, the school that I work for, they charge the student a set amount which is like $70. And then depending on my experience, they then give me a cut of that. So like when you first, for instance, the school that I work at, you know, you start at 25 an hour. Then if you become a certified flight instructor instrument, so I can then teach people their instruments, you then get 30 an hour. Then when you get your MEI, so I teach people in multi-engineer planes, you then can make, uh, you then make 35 an hour. So that's about the ballpark you're looking at. Um, sounds like a lot of money, but if it's, there's a thunderstorm out there, if it's snowing or if it's raining, uh, you know, you don't get paid. <laughs> and how, and it depends on the ability for your clientele to afford to even that want too. to go get an airplane, right? You're looking, yes. you're looking at a, at a, at a finite number, like a very, I know I, 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 uh, it, it isn't, it's not finite, right? But it's small, a small population. Yes. Yeah. I mean, less than 1% of the population are pilots. Part of the reason because it's so expensive and it's getting so much more expensive just like everything else. I mean, the price is just exponentially shooting up. I mean, back when I got all my ratings, it was probably closer to 45. That was only a couple years ago. And now you're talking about the 60 that I just mentioned. And then airplanes have probably increased in price 20 to 50% across the board uh, the past couple years. And gas. And gas has also increased even more. <laughs> 
So yeah, and rough. And then so that plus parts plus everything, it's just keep getting more and more and more and more expensive. So if I don't own the plane, do I still need to help maintain the planes, or is that a job for the school or mm-hmm. the instruct like the instructing facility? Um, thankfully, that is a job for the flight school. So when the school is charging you, so they'll charge you my rate, so whatever it costs for me to be there with you, plus the rental. So for instance, let's say it's $150 an hour for this airplane. Um, it also depends on the school, but most schools, that also does include gas. So that includes gas. You don't have to worry about the maintenance. You don't have to worry about insurance. You just give them that money, and then you just get to fly the airplane. That's not, that's not terrible as a, as a, somebody who's trying to get their, I guess, it, no, because it's still, it's, it's, a, it, you would pay that money if you're trying to get your private license. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So you're paying that money if you're ever sitting in an airplane or if you're ever sitting down with me, that money is, you know, you have to pay that out of, uh, out of pocket. So, and that's in the industry right now, and you'll ask any pilot and they will tell you the exact same thing. There is a massive pilot shortage due to that reason. American Airlines and all the major airlines are already estimating that within two to three years that they're going to be thousands of pilots short because there just isn't enough people becoming pilots. And the demand is just drastically outweighing the supply. You know, I just kind of walked you through getting all these ratings, getting all these hours and doing all this stuff. You That takes years to accomplish. It's not like you can go take a six-week course, and now all of a sudden you're a pilot. You can go fly for someone. <laughs> thankfully, well, <that'd> be nice. <laughs> or thankfully, <laughs> not so nice for the passengers. Nice for the guy flying the plane, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so there's a massive shortage in the aviation industry right now of pilots, and just like what you were discussing, I mean, the cost, the cost is going up so much. And then another thing is, uh, in order to become a pilot, professional commercial pilot, you need a medical. So you go to a actual FAA medical doctor and they say if you are fit to fly an airplane or not. And some of the, another controversial thing, you know, the the government is slow to do anything. So they have these old rules on, you know, if you have any sort of depression or anxiety, or if you're on anti-anxiety medication or depression medication, you are pretty much almost instantly ruled out and you're not going to become it. Or you have to pay thousands of dollars to go to a psychiatrist and psychologist because they don't want you to, you know, it's, they just, I guess back in the day, you know, they suspected, all right, well, you know, if you have anxiety, we don't want you in an airplane. But, you know, I had one student who, she was a nurse during COVID and she took some anti-anxiety pills for like six months, okay? And it's like you're a nurse during COVID, probably working ungodly hours in horrible conditions. Yeah, probably just justified. Yeah. Well, she hadn't even been on the medicine for nearly two years. Goes to the doctor. They say, no, you know, you can't get it. Or you're going to have to spend all this money to prove that you're able to fly the airplane. But people, that's okay. Well, now you're going to spend thousands of dollars to hope you get it. And that process still could take years it makes me a little upset because then the person who hears it that's interested in getting into the industry that maybe has already been on medication for x amount of years but can live and is doing normal things as a normal person and is able to manage their stuff with their medication is going to be less likely to want to join the field it's like well now i have to say that i'm not either lie Mm -hmm. or and i don't know how 
they're gonna pull medical records, I assume. So you can't really, you can the line can only get you so far, right? And but then you get to that point where it's like I'm, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Like it should be okay. Like we, everything's costing more. People have anxiety. It's okay. <laughs> God damn it. I know. Well, and that's and that's the thing. That's why I just think, and I and I think the rules and the regulations will catch up to it one day. But once again, to get people to put a pen to paper and change things. It's just going to take years to fix it. And I think, so you have high cost. You have more people that are diagnosed with either anxiety or depression. And now, with that combined, now less people can become pilots medically and financially. So it's just become a very difficult thing for people to get into the industry, sadly. Something's got to break at some point, right? I mean, the prices of flying is going to be that much more expensive and it will become a, a much more much more of a luxury than it already is or it, the schools will let up but then if the if it becomes less expensive to fly i mean you're talking about multiple factors you're talking about the individual trying to make enough money to live off an instructor's salary the gas prices which there really is almost no control over right as a as an air right. as a pilot or a, for a person trying to become a pilot and then the school's operating costs, mm-hmm. maintenance, yep. the tools. Yep. I mean, something's not gonna. <laughs> this is not what, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right, and that's what and that's what people are saying. That's why it's like you know, like like you just said. You know, something has to break eventually. Now, what that is, I wish I could say. I mean, thankfully, thankful. And some of the some of the companies, some of the airlines are actually starting to work with schools, being like, hey. We'll sponsor people. We'll pay for their flight training if they say they'll come work for us afterwards. And like even to a student, they're like, "Yeah, that's cool because I get a guaranteed job." Yeah. So that has started. There's a little bit more of that um, happening. Um, and there are other flight schools out there. There's a flight school called ATP. Um, what they do is they specialize in you go. You go there and you become a commercial instructor within about eight months. So that's like a really, really fast track. You don't hold a job. You don't do anything. You're literally there you do. six days a week for like eight months. Damn. Um, and they will provide you a loan. You know, it costs a lot of money. It costs an arm and a leg. However, you know, once you get out on the other side, I do it tell a lot of people. It's like, is it expensive? Yes. However, after you get your first job, three years after that, you're not even going to think twice about how much you paid. Because the airlines right now are just paying stupid money for new pilots. I mean, the past two years, all of the regionals have doubled their pay. The major airlines doubled. doubled. The major airlines are have increased their pay 20 to 50% plus big bonuses and all that stuff just because they can't get people. So they're, wow. they are incentivizing people financially to come. But still, it takes. There's a long lag to where. Okay, well now, let's say you have an 18 year old who wants to become a pilot. He still needs to pay that training out of his pocket, and he doesn't just have 60 grand laying around, unless he has wealthy parents or can go to a bank and get that much money. But it's just difficult for people to do that, especially since flight schools like mine, we're not a like uh, we're not a like a university where you can go to the government and get like a college loan. It doesn't work like that. You can't get college loans to pay for your flight training. Now you can go to an actual college like UND 
or to a college that has an aviation program, you can get loans through that. So there are opportunities for people to go, but some people that are a little bit older, maybe <coughs> already went to college, like myself, I had already gone through college. I didn't really want to go through college again. Yeah. <laughs> so once again, I had to, you know, it's paying it out of pocket kind of a thing. At one point, and I think it would make financial sense as well, the airline, Delta American, have their own school? Yeah, I've thought about that too. Um, I think right now they're sponsoring it. I don't know though if they have ideas on uh, to make their own school. I feel like, but like I feel like that that would be the best thing for them to do because I mean, then you kind of get the control how your pilots will be trained, and you get the kind of control the people that are teaching your pilots, and then once they get through, all right, here's a guy that we have molded the perfect pilot that we want for our company. And now we're going to give him a job, and now he flies for us. So I agree. <laughs> and then when he's done, he can have a place to retire. And if he just yeah. wants to instruct, then he has a place to go and instruct. Exactly. Yeah. And then they get the and if you can get loans for it and have the students on a on a loan, just like they would go to like on any either technical school or college, and then do their two, three, four year stint, but a practical stint, and then just then American or Delta or whatever that airline is has a guaranteed number. They know how many people are they're going to have as pilots in their next round of retirees and incoming pilots. Yep. yep. You're absolutely correct. Um, and it seems like a good solution. Of course, another thing about aviation is that uh, it is a very, very, what's the word I'm trying to look for, but it goes, it comes and goes very, very quickly. So during COVID-19, no one was flying. You know, they were flying planes empty just because they had to fly them. Um, th because the government gave the airlines money. They're in the part of the um, bargaining process. One of the rules is that the airlines would still fly their airplanes because they had to still pay their people. So they're like, well, fly my dad during COVID flew airplanes that were empty. May or maybe like a 300 passenger airplane that had like two guys on it. <laughs> It just seems so ineffective. Yes. Well, yes. I but, get that you're getting money, but I mean, <clears throat> is the wear and tear and the cost worth the, like... That's a question beyond me. You would assume not. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it automatically was like, probably not. We're wasting a lot of money, you guys. Yeah. yeah no, you, you would assume not. Um, <laughs> that is That is for sure. But, Common sense would say no. <laughs> <laughs> that is but. true. That is true. But, you know, that's one of the things for uh, for aviation. I mean, it comes and goes so quickly. I mean, you have you had 9-11 to where aviation, people thought it was more dangerous. People didn't fly quite as much. You had the financial crisis, 2008 financial crisis. Um, and one thing when, when the country kind of hits an economic slowdown well, why do people get on planes? A lot of them is because they want to go travel. They want to go spend money. They have money to spend. Well, if the economy kind of slows down even just a little bit, a lot of airplanes will not fly nearly as much because they're an industry that will get hit first. You know, restaurants and other stuff that are a little bit more stable, they can kind of foresee into the future a little bit better. But aviation... Aviation, we kind of joke. I mean, it's it, today it can be today. It's great today. It's like a golden era for pilots. I mean, pilots are being paid more. They're being treated better than they ever have. But tomorrow, another lockdown could happen, or 
you know, another financial crisis and all the airplanes are stopping again and all of a sudden everyone gets laid off tomorrow. So it comes and goes in waves. I mean, my, my dad, he's been in the aviation industry for 30 years and he's been furloughed and laid off three times. I mean, he originally, not originally, but he worked for TWA way back in the day. Well, they went bankrupt, got bought up by American and he got laid off shortly after. So the industry is very, very sporadic and you just never quite know what's going to happen. So my assumption would be, you know, airlines probably don't want to put a bunch of money into a school that tomorrow could be worthless. <laughs> Fair. So. Damn. What, what a problem. What, an, what a weird industry. Yes, it is. a. It's a very, very unique. You know, once again, less than 1% of the population are pilots. Very, very niche market. I mean, people, another thing is that people don't realize how many uh, airports there are across this country. Almost every single small town has an airport. Um, and Do you have a number by chance? I don't know. Google, I Google's a good place to go. I could tell you, though. I wonder how many of the commercial pilots are former air, uh, um, air Force or otherwise military pilots. I feel like most of the pilots that I know, which is very, very few people are all, they all have military backgrounds. A lot of, I think, <coughs> I think my dad told me that between like the new hires, just for instance, like American airlines, I think about 10% are military new hires. So there is a, there is a decent chunk. Um, of course the air force pilots though, still make up a very, very small amount of the total pilots in the United States because there's just not, there's not as nearly as many of those as there are civilian pilots flying either corporate jets or, uh, could I fly a jet? Could you fly a jet? Are you certified to fly a jet? I am legal to certify. <sighs> Do I have the ratings? Yes. However, I would technically need to go to a school before insurance, whatever, let me fly an airplane. So another, Another big factor in aviation that's recently occurred is uh, that has actually made it very difficult for people to get into aviation is uh, insurance. So if I want to go fly a King Air. So a King Air is a, think about like a 12-seat prop engine. So it has two props, so it's about 12 people. The FAA says I can legally get in that airplane, go take off and fly it and carry people and get paid. However, the insurance has kind of thrown a wrench in the industry in the past two to three years where they say, well, if you want to fly it, you need to have 500 hours in that airplane before we let you go fly it. And that's a real number for those airplanes. And it's like, well, how do you get those hours if every insurance company in the country says you need 500 hours? How do you do that? Well, you either buy one, that's impossible, because <laughs> then you won't even get insurance to fly it yourself. <laughs> or, and this is what I do, I mean... You find another pilot that has that hours, those hours, and he flies them, and you go sit in the seat next to him, and you sit there for 500 hours getting that time. What the fuck? Yes, and a lot of that is, un. it depends on where you're at, but a lot of it's unpaid, because if I don't have to be there, who wants to pay me to sit there and just click a button and talk on the radio or press some buttons on a GPS? So It's volunteer. It's pretty much volunteer. Damn. Now... It's worth a lot of money to me in hours because it's invaluable. But, you know, I tell people my, my landlord will not accept King Air hours for me to pay my rent. So, 
God, that just seems so unfair. Yes, and that's that's just not that's not okay. So can I go fly a large jet? Yes, I can. But will insurance let me? Hell no. It, 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 I think it makes sense that the insurance company, who I understand is is conscious about money, and the FAA, who is conscious about the pilot, right, have the same requirements. Yeah, or at least similar. Similar? Yeah. Or something that's something that makes sense, like counting hours of practice. I don't know, like having even having somebody else sit next to you as you fly that plane. Yes. Right? Like have designated individuals or places that you could go and learn these things. But it's just like, eh, good luck. <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> but still pay us our insurance money, please. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And then of course that costs more and more every single year. So I mean it it's 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 an issue that that's another issue that the uh, industry is currently facing. And it's recently it's gotten really, really bad. I think partially probably because of COVID to where or not COVID specifically, but after COVID <coughs> So many things got so expensive. You know, if a guy just simply pops a tire on that King Air, the insurance company's like crying because of how much it's going to be. Or if you just nick a prop or just something, you know, it costs so much more. So they're like, well, we only want the best of the best people in that airplane to make sure that they won't damage it. Now, makes sense. But once again, if it's that many hours, it's like that, it's just, it's difficult for us to get that. So then those companies, are really facing a shortage on finding pilots because it's like, I want you to fly this King Air, but you need 500 hours. Well, how do I get that? Um, I don't know, kind of a thing. Same thing with some of these jets. Now, the airlines don't struggle with that because they are under a different subsect of rules and they kind of, I think they also kind of self-insure themselves. I mean, they're just so big, have so much money. They have more professional training they don't have to worry about that as much but some of these smaller corporate stuff and there's a lot of them I mean, there's a lot of corporate jets out there a lot of king airs and a lot of turboprop airplanes they're struggling right now to try to find pilots i mean i the place i fly at a lot of the guys that are flying those king airs are getting above pretty much a lot of them are over 60 years old and once they go away i mean unless there's a lot of young guys sitting in that seat next to them <laughs> It's going to be hard for them to find replacements for them in the next 10 to 20 years. I would assume that's where most of the consistent money would be outside of commercial, right? Commercial is like it does have these fluctuations. People aren't traveling and stuff. But for business, for oil and gas, these guys are, are oh, yeah. moving constantly. So if I'm in Houston and can fly a King Air or something and – Shit, like I, I looked, I, I just for funsies a little bit. I, I wanted to see how much it was going to cost to get a private jet mm -hmm. from uh, Vegas to College Station and, and yeah. back. Yeah, I was like, why not? You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, making some okay money. Yeah, can't be that crazy, right? Yeah, thirty thousand dollars for the smallest playing <laughs> for the smallest jet. I don't, know what it was. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't tell. <laughs> but I was like, God, Sounds about right. jail. Like, that's a, and she's like, oh, we're going to have to stop over here and get gas because uh -huh. it's too, it's too small of a plane for that large uh, of a leg. Yeah. It's like, it's only three hours. <laughs> How expensive is this bitch? It was crazy. But then imagine how much, I would imagine that pilot is getting paid a good, pretty penny of that 30,000. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, well, once you know, and it's a <coughs> and it's a double-edged sword for like what I was saying. Like, you need so many hours in an airplane because if you have that experience, now you can charge more because you're so rare. I mean, you're looking at <clears throat> yeah, it's hard. It's hard to put them price tag on it but let's say that you're hired for a company that does that full-time i mean you're looking at minimum 65 a year that'd probably be like your first year starting there and then with a little bit more experience 90 a year so i mean you get pretty good pay and then what we call like uh sometimes pilots will just do day rates so they're just like hey if you want to fly pilot for hire so like hey i want to fly for you just one day i'll just do one trip for you you know that could be seven eight hundred dollars a day and it could be a two-hour trip or an eight-hour trip, whatever it is, you know. So it's pretty good money. I feel like I would pay a lot more than seven to eight hundred dollars. Like that seems pretty inexpensive compared to the actual plane. To I think for the luxury of what a private jet would offer, a private plane would offer me to not have to work, like drive and park and go and deal with people and. Fuck, like seven eight hundred bucks. I mean, I get that. That's for the individual, right? You're not. Right. It's not. It's not on top of the, the. But I feel like I would. I don't know. Y'all should get paid more. <laughs> you know, like you know, like you tell me ninety five, and I'm like, that's a lot of time. Yeah. That you guys have put in. Yeah. I mean, you. It should be at least at like starting at six figures. I would assume if I'm paying thirty thousand dollars, the maintenance on that jet isn't. Twenty nine hundred dollars yeah. or two thousand nine hundred dollars. Twenty nine thousand dollars. Sorry, right, twenty nine thousand right. dollars. Like, is it the the money goes to that private company f- just for the fact that they offer the service? Like that just seems insane. Yeah, well, and that's why it. You know, that's that's that is like the bottom of the barrel. That is like the bare minimum. Like, if I were to go start the next day, something like that. That's what I'd be charging. Or what I would probably make. But when you start to get into like the airlines and stuff like that, I mean, then you're looking at the six-figure starting range um, and moving on up from that. But the the smaller corporate stuff, I mean, yeah, their maintenance, the maintenance, the insurance, and all that stuff that they have to pay out of just from one guy flying their airplane, it can cost them a tremendous amount of money. Really? Oh, that yeah. That much? It can cost a lot of money. I mean, if one little thing goes wrong, I mean, those planes in... Not to say they break down in the sky, but you know they'll just have little issues here or there. Then you got to send it into a shop. You might have to fly it to a shop. Then you have to pay all that gas to get it there. Then it can be sitting in that hangar. Now you got to pay the fleet of mechanics. They're going to be working on it. Order parts overnight because you don't want it sitting there and wait for ten to you know ten to twelve business days for the part to arrive. So you're paying all this money and money and money and money. So I mean the maintenance. Damn. The maintenance I think is one of the biggest costs for wow. them. Because it can be incredibly expensive, um, but yeah, when you work when you work your way up into the airlines and stuff, I mean, like I said, it's crazy how much they're paying. So if you work at a regional first year, you start at ninety dollars an hour, um, which compares to about eighty to ninety thousand a year. But then it's pretty much s- substantial pay raise from each year on out. Okay. Then when you become a captain. Then you're making 120. Then when you move to a major, I mean, if you're a captain at like a major airline with some experience underneath your belt, then you're making above like 250. Okay. So it pays off in the long run. Okay. Yeah. 
It's definitely a much more of a long-term play, it sounds. Mm-hmm. Which I think most good things are long-term plays, is the idea. Did you end up getting a number of how many airports were? I didn't. Oh, I think okay. it, whatever it is, it is in the thousands. Um, it is in the thousands, whatever it might be. That's all right. I'm just wondering. Um, so now you, I think, I think we got, I think we got all the way through from instructor to now you're twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. Yeah, twenty thousand. Nice. So a decent amount. That's a lot of airports. It is. It's a lot of airports. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of communication. Yeah, you got no idea. <laughs> Quite a bit. Or, or like, is how many people are on a radio at a time? It, it, is are you con? Like, I guess everybody is communicating with one hub, or you guys are are other people communicating among in the air? Yeah. So it. So for instance, let's say that I'm going, that I'm going to take off out of uh, Las Vegas International. So it's cut up into several different ways. So first I would contact the ground, so Las Vegas ground. So they control all the taxiways and how to get me to the beginning of the runway. Then when I'm ready to take off, I would contact the tower. So And then <clears throat> from tower, I then take off, and then I would contact departure. So departure will control the airplanes getting from the lower altitudes. And then when I get to a higher altitude, they'll then send me over to like a, uh, a center that controls the higher altitudes. And then as I'm flying, I'll be changed over to different centers as I'm flying. So they have it broken up into altitudes and, to, and into uh, sectors on the map. So there's a fleet of controllers out there yeah. controlling all of this. Would you ever do that, John? If for some reason I couldn't be a pilot, I have considered it. <laughs> if I lose my leg or, I don't know, <laughs> lose my eyes, maybe. Because it would be pretty cool. I mean, but that's also one of those uh, problem-solving things. Because now you got to talk to those pilots. Be like, okay, well, what do you need? Well, what do you need? What do you need? Making sure they don't hit each other. Making sure they don't go into bad weather. Making sure, you know, they uh, get where they need to go. Make sure that if one is an emergency, how do I provide the services or whatever I have to do uh, to make sure that they're safe to the best of my ability? So it would be – that's another challenging – they have – I don't know. I honestly think their job might be more stressful because I've heard some of those guys. I mean, they'll be talking to over thirty planes at one time. No, and I'm I don't. Sorry. And I don't think I. I don't know. How. <laughs> I'm good. Talk to one guy, you could deal with the thirty other people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Damn, that's kind of fun. But you just you're focused on the thing that you want. Yes, it's really cool. Yes. You can tell. I mean. I think it's really cool when you find people that are like that really know the things in that that make the trade itself unique and difficult and the knowledge behind and to support the skill but then the surrounding aspects as well. I think that's what makes somebody who's really good at their job and you know the surrounding pieces. Mm-hmm. And when you're focused on wanting to do a thing, like you just becomes like that, it almost becomes part of who you are, and it becomes a lot of your identity, which I think is good and bad. I think that you know I was a powerlifter for so long, and I knew everything about. It. I could ref, I could do all the things, but then I went. The, I think the thing that I kind of fear going to the next thing is that it became my identity. So then when I left, I was like holy shit, what do I do? <laughs> you know, like it was so kind of 
worrisome, but the, like the the fact that there is such a long term play with this, like mm-hmm. this could really be the the center of what of who Luke kind of is. And then he's able to kind of branch out and do all these other things if he really wants to, which I think is fucking like that's seems like the more viable and effective way to go in the long run for most people, which is, I think, like yeah. the goal for college. Like you go and you do this thing for four years, you really get engulfed and you understand it, and then you move on to the next thing. For whatever reason, most Americans don't end up getting a job in the thing that they studied. So then why are we spending so much why, – why is there so – it's not how much time we're putting in college, but there's such an emphasis on you have to get this degree. Yeah. I don't even know what the fuck I want to eat for lunch tomorrow, dog. Like you want, you want me to decide <laughs> what I true. want to do in 15 to 20 years when I don't uh-huh. even know what jobs are out there or what I could really do? Yep. That sounds insane. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I got a degree in uh, business administration, and here I am a pilot. So, I mean, a little bit, a little bit different than uh, supposed to be the paper pusher, I guess, or whatever I was supposed to be with my business degree. So, so yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And it's funny how you mentioned uh, like <coughs> the body or the the lifter being part of your personality. I always joke with people. It's like my personality is I'm a pilot. I mean, <laughs> it's about as you can probably tell. I mean, I love to talk about it. It is. It is. Like you said, it's a big part of my personality and who I am, which just because I love it so much, you know, it just you just become uh, enveloped in what you love, which is always very cool to find. I think that there's a desire to want to step out of like that method of thinking because social media will allow us to be like what seems like a person or an influencer, but not like, what is an influencer really? What does an influencer really do? Who really are they? Right. They, they take pictures and they're kind of a model, but they're not really like a, they're, they're not really a person, right? You just, you see them on a, on a feed and it's easy to understand. Oh, I take pictures of myself and post them. I can get paid for it. Maybe, but you don't really understand the back end of what they're doing and why that picture is significant. And so I think people are like, they don't see the fact they don't see the behind the scenes of, yeah, Luke is a problem solver and he's a, he's a chill dude and he's all these things, but you see this picture of this guy, but why it's like, well, because of his, his training is kind of, guiding him and forcing him to be that way because if he if he's not that way then lives are the line not just his but all the people that are in his plane and all the people that he goes up with and his own right obviously with other other uh, other people maybe not know how to fly yet like it's fucking cool because then you Mm -hmm. you actually have something to add value into the world Mm -hmm. and to talk about you know so it's like I think it, you also have to have some gift of communication and, and you're also forced to have that gift of communication as well. Like you can't make it in the industry if you can't talk to people. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to talk to – that one person needs to be able to listen to 30 people at the same time and mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to talk to that guy and understand he's talking to 30 other people. Yep. It's, it's cool as fuck. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's why, I mean, I would recommend anyone to ever, I mean, I, I try to tell people it's like, one of the things that about like, I shouldn't say college, but 
aviation just being so small. Another thing is that I think a lot of people don't look at it as something like you were saying, like so cool, like all the problem solving, the communication, all that stuff. They're like, oh, that's a glorified bus driver. It's like, no, there's quite a bit more to it than that. <laughs> quite, quite a bit more. <laughs> a little bit more. So glorified. I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever likened a pilot to a glorified bus driver, but <laughs> that's good. That's what my dad says. He's like, I'm just, he also says he's just an overpaid bus driver, which is, which is comparably is fairly true. <laughs> I, mean, I guess at one point you kind of, like, I think whenever you get so good at something, you kind of lose sight of all the hours it took to get there. And you're just like, I'm just flying the fucking plane. But like, you're so like you're so you're much more engaged than you realize it's just so yeah. subconscious yeah. that he is an overpaid bus driver <laughs> at that point right? yes. but with 30 yes. years of experience i hope that he's an <laughs> overpaid bus. i fucking pay him all day to be an overpaid bus driver shit yeah yeah that is very true <laughs> that's fun dude yeah I'm, this is probably one of my favorite i think episodes so far i think that there you i you never know what people have like to say, right? And so sometimes I ask a lot of people to get on. And sometimes in the middle of it, I'm like, man, this person really doesn't have much. Like, hey, like, yeah, well, how, how was your day? Good. I'm glad I had something because sometimes I'm like that. But when you ask me about aviation, I will talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on end. And I think that once, like, once aviation becomes that foundation, I think it's the same in business. And what everyone keeps on telling, it's like you, you find a niche, you find this thing, and then you can uh, now you can like deviate off that thing because now once you have such an understanding of that the 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 skill, then you have to have these interpersonal inner workings that you're that you're working on. It might it might be communication, and then how you may have struggled. I think the a cool story was I forgot what book it was in, but I'm sure it was it's it was everywhere at some point was um it it was I think in Japan it was an Asian pilot that wasn't able that couldn't and a crash happened because he couldn't tell his superior or his elder Mm -hmm. to to move a specific way like we're gonna make this accident and because of the societal norm that was that originated there he wasn't able to right and so like once you're in and, and from an outside perspective i can understand that and relate to it but on the inside it's like you can dissect that and understand it and what it means to be a communicator on top of being a pilot and then what it means to be in that culture and then what you know like so yep. many things to come off of that it becomes really interesting yeah so my dad uh my dad worked for <coughs> um worked for a training company and he trained pilots and he he said he always found it interesting to work because and they people companies from all over the world would send pilots to uh him and they would have flight simulators to teach them how to fly like you know 737s or whatever it might have been and he did say that it was interesting and i know exactly which accident you're talking about um and i bring that up well i don't bring it up with my students but the uh but he's, he said he found it interesting because, like you said, for these people from these other cultures, and either the Japanese, uh, Chinese, or even sometimes like in the like Middle Eastern areas, like you said, you don't question your elder. It is something that you do not do. Now, here in the United States, 
No, you question them all day long. You know, you're a rebellion, <laughs> rebellious teenager. It's part of the culture is what you do. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it was because it was a very, very experienced pilot. And I don't remember if he put in the wrong fix or if he didn't he didn't have uh, the power setting properly. But yeah, they ended up crashing into the side of a mountain. Yeah. And like you said, it, the first officer apparently was aware of it, but he was not wanting to question his superior. Um, and like, like you said, I mean, communication is one of the, and that's something that I personally had to work on a little bit because I'm, I'm generally, generally a more quiet guy that I don't generally like to talk as much. But when I get into an airplane, I'm like, all right, I can't, you got to change that way. And you just, and you have to talk about the important things and you have to talk about what you're doing. I mean, um, I tell students, like, if you want to be a good pilot, another thing, like I was telling you about how small corrections and stuff, I mean, if you want to be a good pilot, Every time that I do something, I say it out loud. I'm like, okay, I'm, even if I'm by myself, I do it. I'm like, okay, I'm pulling the power to this setting. I'm going to do this. I'm adding a flap here. All right, I'm turning base. All right, I don't see anybody. All right, here's the runway. I've been cleared to use it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, communication is insurmountably um, important to what we do. And like you said, like with a business and with many aspects of life, you know, but... Um, but yeah, you know, come then back to uh, you know the the different cultures and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's very fascinating that that kind of stuff will change the outcomes of those accidents and stuff like that. I love being able to communicate, and every individual that you communicate, every single student will hear things differently. Just like there's cultural differences, there's going to be something that happened in that that in that students upbringing or maybe working with a different instructor where they a specific cue works a specific way or they're looking for specific things and the way you're going to teach it may be similar like you're trying to get the same goal or same outcome but it's going to be in a very different way and so learning how that person receives information and being able to disseminate that in a clear and concise way and then to be able to understand the body language and facial expressions to say this person didn't really understand what that meant they said yes but they still didn't get it and mm -hmm. before they even make the correction and or, or attempt to make the corrections like wait don't don't do what you think what you think you occurred <laughs> we're gonna go through this one more time yeah we're like did, did you did you understand this oh no Got it. And then that's what makes a good educator. I think you said, like, you said at the beginning, you're a teacher. And I think I like to make it more broad. You're you're an educator. And yeah. I think that personal training is education. I was the same way. I was yeah. not – I always said I was more of an introvert. I never really – I was more of a quiet guy. But then I you don't have the option. Like, somebody's coming to you and you're paying you money to solve a problem. You have to speak up. You have an expertise. Even if you don't really think that you do, you've obviously made it to this point that you do. So speak up. And it changes that person's life. I think like in that moment, it, it allows them to receive information. But I think it changes the trajectory of that individual's life. And you have the opportunity to either let them have a really cool experience as a student and teacher relationship or you ruin it for them and they're like, fuck this. I don't want to learn how to ever fly. I'm done. And then they go do another thing, which could be the right thing for that person. Right. But you have the opportunity and, and to to allow them 
in an industry that also changed your life and gave you some satisfaction. That's the coolest fucking thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, I mean, probably the same thing that you've had experience uh, being a personal trainer. It's like everyone, it amazes me how different every single one of my students are. And I have to mold my teaching uh, style to every single one. I have a, uh, one of my students I'm working with now, she, she needs more like positive reinforcement. Otherwise she gets real, she'll get really down on herself. Even if she just makes one little mistake and I'm like, it's literally no big deal. It was like maybe a little bit bouncy on a landing. It's like, it's fine. It happens. And she's like, no, like this is unacceptable. So provide a lot more positive reinforcement. Then I have some students that are like, they'll have a horrendous landing and I'm like, what the hell was that? And then they'll be like, well, yeah, but, but, but my thing earlier was good. <laughs> it's like, well, that's besides the point. This was really, really, really bad. <laughs> so you have to look at those different students in different ways. I have one student. He is a uh, more brilliant than I will ever be, but he was some aerospace engineer that worked and built like the wings of an F-15 and did Damn. all kinds of scientific engineering marvels that, once again, more intelligent than I will ever be. But I had to teach him very differently. I couldn't be like, yeah, so this is kind of how it looks, and you're going to come down and lane like this and kind of like show him. It had to be like, you're going to do this at this airspeed, do this at this, do this at this, and like almost like give it to him in a mathematical equation and say, here's how you're going to do it. Now, I'm assuming you probably had some kind of familiar uh, similarities with teaching people in the, in the uh, personal training stuff because everyone is just so different in how they receive information and then how they um, express, you know, and how they communicate with you. Some people like they, some of my students, they don't like to talk. So I had to pick up on their, um, their physical cues. Sometimes they're, uh, sometimes they can be, they express themselves emotionally or sometimes they just say it how it is, or sometimes they kind of dance around the issue. You have to pick up on those things very quickly, especially with, especially when you're in an airplane, because if they try to dance around the issue, well, that's not the greatest thing in the world. Um, and sometimes if they get emotional, that may not be the greatest thing, but you know, you just kind of have to learn to adapt in how you're going to teach them and how you're going to receive information from them. I think asking questions is the best thing that, that I was able to learn, which is, just and asking the same question multiple different ways and being able to understand whether they got it or not. Like, did they get the question or did they hear a question they wanted to hear? You know, and just okay, that that, that really wasn't an answer. And then depending on the answer to the question, you'll know how they heard the question, so you'll know how to redirect and ask a better question or a question that's more guided to what you're looking for and still not be so leading that they pick up on it and then don't feel like then they feel pressured to answer the question. So they're less likely to, to make the connection and I'm feeding them a connection because ultimately you're not going to be there during their 40 hour or they're in, they're in their solo. I'm not going to be there now with the clients that I've worked with before. So how can I ask a question that they get the click and I'm just like, Boom. Yep. You got it. Yep. Right. And that's just, it's a really cool, gratifying feeling to see somebody like, oh, you're like, <laughs> yes. You know, it's a win, dude. Yep. It's such a good win. I love yep. it. Yep. Oh, all the time. Experience it all the time. Uh, 
Yeah, because like you said, I mean, because because you can ask the one, you can ask the question this way towards someone, and they get that click, and you ask it towards a different person, it's like, uh, it's like, okay, well, how do I ask you in a different way? So yeah, and like you said, it's very very gratifying to hear and to see that click in them. Um, it's very very satisfying, especially when you're trying to teach them something, even like you know, like what you're doing. I mean, you know, you're preventing injury so they don't go and hurt themselves and break their back and you know break their joints and stuff like that and making them healthy same thing for me making sure that people are staying safe while they're in the air flying their families around you know and you have to be able to communicate that well like i said it is a good feeling to see it when they finally get it i think both things are some sort of luxury right you have one end that not a lot of people can afford unfortunately being healthy is expensive it's only becoming more expensive so you have people on one end that you know that that $70 session or $50 or whatever whatever that personal trainer is charging is so much that they're like really trying to take it all in then you have the people who are like I can afford this shit like but at the same time an understanding of this is what I want still either either way like a small portion of people and then on the opposite end you have people who can afford and want to fly planes i think you have both opposite end of the spectrums that exist there the people that are making the sixty thousand dollars a year already are probably not looking to change their 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 way of living most likely not always but you have opposite ends where every hour counts to that person and you have the opportunity to make you know like communicate well and do all those fun things and then on the opposite end where people have that money to to kind of spend but at the same time they understand what that money that that value is yes right and so they understand the value of money versus understanding that they don't like on the opposite end like i don't have very much versus i have a lot but i work to get here right yeah um i think they're they're both really cool niches that allow for some really cool learning experiences for both the, the individual and then for the teacher as well yeah fun stuff man well i like to end off on like a golden nugget i don't know if i'm gonna keep this forever i feel like asking for the golden nuggets weird because there's a lot of golden nuggets already but whatever (laughs) um like if you were to go back and tell yourself something or like if you heard like if a a potential student was listening then what is a golden nugget or like a little bit of information or knowledge that you could give somebody to make them better to make a make a better decision (coughs) that's a tough one um, I'm stealing this from another, uh, I'm stealing this from another, uh, pilot YouTuber. He's an instructor and he teaches people, but, um, I always like it's, uh, a good pilot is always learning. I mean, and my dad, and my dad says that too, you know, it's like, we are, you, you never get to a point in your career. So it's like, well, I've learned enough and I don't really need to learn too much more. I'm just like, I, I have enough to be safe and everything else is going to be okay. There is still so much more for me to learn. There's still so much more for my students to learn. And the more I learn, the more actually sometimes in inadequate, I feel of as an instructor. Cause I'm like, there's still so much more I need to teach you. It's like you can pass the test, but there's still so much more I want to teach you. But um, just to remind ourselves that um, there's just still so much more to learn and there's just still so much more to experience and to build ourselves as professionals. And that goes for any industry. You know, a good X is always learning. A good whatever still has so much more to learn. Um, there is a, 
I forgot what it's called, but there's like a graph where it kind of, it shows you that, you know, you, you get into an industry and you kind of get to a point where you're like, oh man, I'm really cool, good. And then you actually start to learn and then it starts to go down your confidence and like, oh man, I know shit. <laughs> and then eventually to go up when you actually become like a real professional, but to remind ourselves that we constantly need to be learning. We constantly need to be bettering ourselves for whatever we are in pilot, personal trainer, whatever it may be. There's always more to learn. I love it. Thank you. Love you for tuning in. Thank you. <laughs> hey, best. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Ben Nevados podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. 